Hello everyone and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we will be doing a head-to-head episode discussing our favorite winter content, the 2010 film Rare Exports and the 1977 novel The Shining. Warning, spoilers ahead. Hey Kat. Hi Remy, how are you today? I'm good. How was your trip? It was good. Um, It was nice to have a couple days away. I went to Nashville for a couple of days last weekend, and so we didn't record, but I got a little bit of extra warmth and sunshine. It was in like the 50s when I was there, so it was really nice. But That is nice. Yeah. My husband was out there for a conference, and we met halfway, so that was really fun. I've never been there before. What's it like? It's just like kind of like any city, I guess. Um, any like smallish city. There's a lot of really good hiking around there. Like the mm. um, kind of towards the end of the AT is a ways away, but a couple hours away from Nashville. So we didn't do any of that. But mm-hmm. there's also the Natchez Trace, which I used to hike when I was a kid and lived there with my mom, which has some cool waterfalls and stuff. So. We hiked the Garrison Creek section, so that was really nice, and lots of, like, really curvy, scenic roads out there. Cool. Yeah, it was really nice. It was some stolen time. Um, Scott actually gets out here next Monday for, like, Christmas time, so. Oh, exciting. Yeah. What have you been up to the past couple of weeks? Oh, just a bunch of bullshit, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing terribly exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to things winding down at work for holiday trips and stuff as well. People have already started to leave, which makes me feel like it's just time to start phoning it in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think of anything exciting happening to tell you about. I can't think of anything. This morning I went for a run in Central Park and there was some sort of half marathon going on, which is always (laughs) an unpleasant surprise when I like go to run my normal route and I get there and there's a million people Mm -hmm. on the loop and I'm like, oh man, I just want to do my normal run. (laughs) Now you're doing a half marathon. Yeah. Yeah. There's all all these people wearing like aluminum blankets and whatever. Um, Yeah. yeah, So I always run anyway. And then it's just like, it's just more people to Mm -hmm. kind of avoid. I don't know. It's not that bad. I, I must have like gone farther than what their course was because um, halfway through they all disappeared. So it was fine (laughs) in the end. Fun. Yeah, just like normal stuff otherwise. Yeah. Well, just a week or so until you're able to head out for Christmas? Um, about... A week and a half, maybe? A week and a half. I see. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's about when we're leaving as well. And you're going to your mom's? Yes. Uh, We're going to my mom's. It's a whole thing. We're going to my mom's, and then we're going up to, like, the Chicago area, and then we're coming back down to my mom's, and then we're going back to Iowa. So it's like a weird backwards L. Mm. Um, But yeah, so it should be nice. I'm excited about it. Ah, should we jump in? Um, sure, if you're ready. Yeah, I guess so. So this week we are doing a special head-to-head episode 
where we already start with something in common between our two pieces of media that we'll be discussing. And the thing that's uncommon in this episode is that they're both winter media that we enjoy, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Nice snowy scenes and yeah, good winter vibes. Well, bad yeah. winter vibes for both of us, probably. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so the piece of media that makes me think of winter and this time of year um, that I've chosen to talk about today is the 2010 film Rare Exports. I told you I did the reveal that this was my topic to you earlier today, Kat, and I couldn't remember if I had ever talked to you or recommended it to you before. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, this is definitely one that I recommend to people frequently when they haven't heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't gauge like how popular it is exactly. I've Had you never heard even of it heard before? of it. You've never no. heard of it. Okay. That's cool. Um, so you may not have heard of it because it's a foreign language film. It's in Finnish, I believe. Mm. I'm assuming it's in Finnish because it takes place in Finland. <laughs> That's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's directed by Yalmeri Helander. And like I said, it takes place in Finland, specifically in the very mountainous region that's on the border with Russia. So it is like prime, snowy mountain, just beautiful scenery. I'm sure. Wonderful wintry scenery in this film. And it is about this small village up in the mountains in this region. And... It specifically focuses on a small family there. The main character, his name is Pitari, and he's a young boy who lives with his dad. And it's just the two of them, and his dad is the village butcher. And Pitari, he's... Oh, man, I'm bad at estimating children's ages. I'd put him in, like, the 10 to 12 years old range, mm-hmm. I suppose. He's this kid, he's really sweet, and he he kind of has like this tenuous relationship with his dad where you can tell that they're both really sad that the mom isn't around anymore, and Pitari, he doesn't have like a lot of interests in common with his dad, like he doesn't like seeing him do his butchering work because he's like sensitive about that and they kind of have a standoffish relationship towards the beginning of the film where he's just not really sure how to um live up to his dad's expectations I guess so yeah he's basically just this like really sweet kid he has a stuffed animal that he brings with him a lot of places that he talks to. I think it's kind of like his little dog toy. He, like, Aww. talks to it like it's his dog. It's very cute. Um, and so you see their activities in the village. The village as a whole seems to rely economically on reindeer migration And something happens this year, um, it's happening around Christmas time, like, the events of the movie are leading up to, uh, like, the weeks before Christmas, and there is a nearby mining operation in the mountains that is controlled by 
like this Russian mining corporation and this weird American guy who I don't <laughs> know why he's there exactly, but he sort of co-opted the mining operation because he believes that the real Santa Claus is located deep inside one of the mountains. And so they're kind of doing a bunch of blasting in this particular mountain to try to find him. <laughs> um, he thinks it's like the tomb of Santa Claus or something like that. Interesting. Right. And so this is all happening in parallel, essentially, in the beginning, but the only person in the village who kind of catches wind of this is Pitari, and he does, like, a lot of his own little research about the, like, more traditional folklore of Santa Claus, which is really weird and kind of, it's, like, a lot more punishment-based. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how familiar you are with it, Kat. I'm not super familiar with it, but isn't that kind of like what, like, the idea of Krampus is kind of based yes. off of and stuff like that as well? Exactly, exactly. So, like, a really, like, creepy, scary dude who feeds <laughs> kids with, like, tree branches and that sort of right. thing. <laughs> All of his research is mostly, like, pictorial, so he's, like, seeing <laughs> all of these old drawings of, um you know, like, folklore renditions of Santa Claus, and he's like, oh no, I don't want them to uncover him. He looks horrifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which I really like, because the the folklore aspect was is, like, much more interesting than the, like, American commercialized aspect. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so... The village is, like, really dismayed because they find out that the reindeer migration has been disrupted, and they suspect it's because of all of the blasting that's been going on in the mountains. And so they go to investigate and try to see what's going on, and all of the reindeer have been slaughtered inexplicably. And so they're like, oh, okay, this was our livelihood for the year. We don't know what we're going to do now. And so everyone's just having a really bad time. And then more strange things start happening where specific household devices start to go missing. And Pitari, he can see tracks in the snow that are evidence that someone has like been watching them through the windows of their home. And all of these creepy happenings are going on over the course of a few days. And eventually, the children in the village go missing, all except for Pitari. And that's because there was a specific trap set up outside of his house. And I don't know how much I want to give away, so I'll probably stop it there. But based based on the events that happen right, like, leading up to Christmas Day and on Christmas Day, Pitari and his dad and his dad's friends, who are also, you know, dudes in the village, they all have to work together to overcome these creepy uh, forces, and they gotta get really inventive, and they gotta be really brave, and they gotta do, you know, all this action-y stuff in order to save the village and try to find a way to work themselves out of this economic disaster that's happened with the reindeer and everything. Mm. So, yeah, that's basically the the plot of the movie without giving away the important parts. And 
I really like the movie because, um, well, it's beautiful, first of all. I kind of already mentioned that, but there's a lot of really wonderful scenery of the mountains where they filmed there. And I really like the way the village operates in that everyone seems to have kind of their own little outpost where they have their home and their business all together. Mm. And then they drive on snowmobiles to get to everyone else's place. Sometimes Mm. I guess they do use cars as well, but their major mode of transport seems to be snowmobiles, which is really fun. (laughs) I found that really um pleasing and that's definitely something i would have loved if i had grown up in a village like that just Mm -hmm. kind of snowmobiling to your friend's house i really liked the way that um pitari kind of ends up getting to work together with his dad in order to solve this larger problem that's going on Mm -hmm. that was really pleasing and I really like all of the characters from the village because they have a really good (laughs) spirit. I don't know how to explain it exactly. They just, uh, I love the way they tackle challenges Mm -hmm. and they work together. And the movie is cool because it has those like pseudo creepy folklore thriller-ish elements, Mm -hmm. but it also has you know, a certain amount of comedic beats as well. Mm-hmm. And there's like a really good balance between the slightly scary parts and the more humorous parts and the more heartwarming parts and the more action parts. That so sounds kinda, so up my alley. <laughs> it brings like a ton of that. different elements. Yeah. And I just really liked it as this kind of completely agnostic take on Santa Claus as Uh like this guy that could have existed and in like a really strange troubling form I Uh suppose (laughs) um and I also like that the weird American guy is the main villain (laughs) because he like comes there and meddles in this mining operation and just kind of fucking ruins everything yeah because he's trying to you know, find Santa Claus and get rich. And it's like, it's a great villain. <laughs> it's very American. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I guess those are the main points. I'm trying to think about what else I can say without giving anything or giving too much away. Yeah, it's just very, very wintry. <laughs> it's pretty short. It's about an hour and 20 minutes. So it's a quick watch, which is perfect for the holidays. I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of holiday movies are short. And so they're really easy to sit down and watch with the whole family. Mm -hmm. Um, I did. This was funny. I found this movie when I was in college. So that was like right around the time when it came out. So Mm -hmm. somehow I saw it very soon after it was made. And then when I was living for a year with some of my extended family, um, when I started graduate school, I like shared this movie with them mm-hmm. and they all loved it. So uh, it's definitely fun to watch with your family. Good. Not for kids? For kids? Like an older kid could watch it maybe? I guess so. I mean, there's not, there's not like... Um, graphic violence or anything. There's like implied violence. Mm-hmm. There's some blood. There is definitely male nudity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
but like not in a sexualized way, mm-hmm. just in like a primitive life form way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> and, but yeah, other than that, it's fine. Okay. Great. <laughs> it just depends on your family, I guess. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm really excited that this is something that I've never even heard of. So, yeah, I'll have to get Scott to watch that with me when he's up for Christmas. Yeah, You said it's on Hulu now? It is on Hulu, yes. Nice. Very cool. All right. Yeah, check it out. Let me know what you think. I will. I will have to do that. It'll be Die Hard and this movie. Excellent. And The Holiday. That'll be our three Christmas movie watches. Yeah, it's definitely in my wheelhouse in terms of holiday films because it's, I would not describe it as festive (laughs) because I'm simply not a festive person. (laughs) It's like a bunch of people outside (laughs) doing stuff, which is more my speed. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that sounds super cool. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm already seeing some similarities between this film and the novel that I chose. Big surprise. I (laughs) chose to talk about The Shining, um, specifically the novel, which was published in 1977. It was adapted three years later by Stanley Kubrick, um, and it's a highly regarded film. It has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 93% audience score, which I found quite surprising because this isn't a film that particularly struck me, which is why I'm focusing on the novel, but clearly there's a lot of appreciation for this film. And I mean, the source material is fantastic. So Mm -hmm. I'm surprised it's only 82 critics. That's shocking to me. I found quite a few critics that have kind of a similar mentality to me. I'm a big fan of the film. I think it's excellent, excellent. One of the best films ever made. So I'm way more in that camp. And that's totally fair. You'll kind of see this in like the things that I highlight in my discussion today. But my major thing with the film is the differences in the characters and their dynamics with one another. Right. And I kind of want to highlight that um, because it's one of the things that I think make the book so strong and make me really resonate with that book and really enjoy it. So I would say that this is my favorite book right now at this moment. Really? Yes, it is my absolute favorite book. And I have started a tradition where I want to read it every year around Christmas time. I'd like to just revisit this book because every time I read it, I get more out of it. And I just think that it is one of Stephen King's most beautifully written novels. I don't know, his writing is just so beautiful as he describes this family dynamic. And I don't know, it just really resonates with me. Um, And it, it like touches on a lot of like, internal monologues with all of the characters. So um, I think that it's just so fantastic. So I'll go through like, just a quick synopsis of the very beginning of the story. Um, If you haven't seen or um, read The Shining, it is fantastic, either in its film form or book form. And I highly recommend watching it at least once or reading it once because I, I really think that it's culturally very important and a lot of inspiration has come from this source material 
and you'll start seeing it crop up in different places. So I, I just think that it's a really important piece of work. Yeah, I agree. It's incredibly influential, especially, I mean, the film. Yeah, there's a lot of um, visual motifs that I've noticed in other films that kind of come from The Shining. Actually, my first exposure to The Shining was via Twister when um, oh, at the drive-in. <laughs> they're at the drive-in, right? and the Grady twins are on the screen, and the yeah. tornado rips through, yeah. and I was like, Mom, what's that movie? I want to watch that movie, and she was like, you're not watching that movie. I was like, eight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that was my first exposure to The Shining, and I started reading Stephen King at a really young age. I think I was in fifth grade when I read Salem's Lot, and mm-hmm. then I read The Shining shortly after that, and liked The Shining significantly more than I enjoyed Salem's Lot. And it has left a really um, huge impression on me. And then revisiting it as an adult has been really valuable, I think. So in terms of a basic synopsis, um, you have your classic main character, Jack, um, Jack Torrance. He's played by Jack Nicholson in the film. And he loses his job teaching English at a preparatory school. So it's this like pretty prestigious teaching position. And the faculty that he works with are pretty excited because he's like this budding author and he writes plays and um, they think that he's going to be like this really good thing for their school. And then there ends up being an incident where he has a student who is um, disgruntled after being kicked from the debate team and the student slashes his tires and he catches the student slashing the tires and he hits the student in anger. Um, He has a lot of temper issues and um, it loses him the job. And so he is searching for a new job, looking for a way to make ends meet. And he gets a job as the winter caretaker at the Overlook Hotel. And this job is one that he's getting through his connections with uh, another influential guy named Al Shockley. Uh, he basically gets handed this job, even though the, the person at the hotel says, like, I don't know if you're a good fit based on your previous history. Like, the last guy who lived here killed his whole family. And mm-hmm. um, Jack basically says, like, that's not me. I'm an educated man. Um, we're we're all educated, so we're fine. <laughs> Which is an interesting take. <laughs> yeah, um, that's not me. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you take that job if it was offered to you? Ooh. Um, hmm. The winter caretaker. I wouldn't be very good as the winter caretaker. Uh, Scott would be better at that job than I would because I don't know how to maintain anything. But I think it would give me anxiety to not have access to like emergency care or anything. Mm. Like I think being so remote would make me particularly anxious. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think it would be cool. I mean, as long as I knew some basic first aid, I think it would be fine. I would never go with a child, though. I feel like, uh, I don't know, just that kind of isolation I don't think would be good for a child in general. But Sure. 
But yeah, so he ends up getting the job and it seems like this perfect job, right? So he's going to have lots of time to work on his play, lots of time away from alcohol. He is a recently sober individual and so he's a recovering alcoholic and he's not going to have any alcohol access at this hotel. And there will also be lots of time to reconnect with his family and try to fix his relationships with them. There have been multiple incidents where um, one main incident where he accidentally breaks Danny's arm in a fit of rage. Danny had like knocked his papers on the floor and accidentally spilled beer on them. And Mm -hmm. he grabs Danny by his arm and um, hears it crack. And um, in that moment, you see Jack see his whole life change because his wife now no longer trusts him around the child. Mm -hmm. And there's this like weird distrust, but also desperate love that Danny feels for his father. Like Mm -hmm. he's scared of his father after that incident a little bit, but then also just like desperately wants his father to love him and, and things like that. So it's a really interesting dynamic um, between all of the members of the family. So he wants to reconnect with his family And before the move, his son Danny gets these visions um, and hears his imaginary friend, Tony, (laughs) talking to him. And uh, basically these visions are warning him about the Overlook Hotel and warning him about this mysterious red rum. And that's kind of where I'll leave the general plot, but... I just think that it's a really great haunted hotel story. So if that's up your alley at all, this is definitely my alley, my wheelhouse. Um, And it's got well-written characters with a really interesting family dynamic that you get to explore. So I think I just love it. So as I mentioned before, one of the things that I thought makes this novel so strong is that um, the characters have a lot of complexity to their natures and their emotional states and their personal struggles. So the most obvious complex character is Jack Torrance because he has a lot of different struggles. So he's a recovering alcoholic and he has temper issues, but I think what this book shows that is so important and something that you don't get to see, especially in the film, are these moments of just like absolute shame and regret after doing something um, bad. So when he breaks Danny's arm, he has this like sickening regret of what he's just done. And you kind of see him process in that moment that like his marriage could be over and he could be losing everything that makes up his life and he reevaluates the situation. And you also get to see in the first part of this book, it's broken up into I think four or five parts, you get to see multiple cycles of him doing something bad, feeling shame and regret, and then trying to be better, and then doing it again, and like trying to be better and doing it again and trying to be better. Mm-hmm. And so um, basically the thing with Danny's arm happens and he's like, okay, I'm going to sober up. But then he starts drinking again. And then he and Al are driving drunk and they hit a bike in the middle of the road and they aren't sure if there was a child on the bike. Um, And they hit it going really high speeds and they never find a body. And 
that's kind of this moment where he's like, that could have ended so badly. Mm -hmm. And he like gets on the wagon and is on it for good as far as we can tell. And you also get to see like his struggles with craving how like every waking moment he's thinking about what Danny calls the bad thing, because he's able to sense what his parents are thinking about. And drinking is the bad thing. Mm-hmm. And we see his love for his son, and I would say that it's less of a focus in this section, but also for Wendy, his wife. And with Wendy, we see that she's very unhappy. She uh, It talks about her like crying a lot and just feeling really hopeless and desperate. And we also know from the book that she's considering divorcing Jack after he breaks Danny's arm. Um, but we also see like this complex relationship between Wendy and her mother as one of the reasons that she doesn't leave because she has no means of income really. Mm -hmm. And so she can't just like get up and leave and go get a job because it's like the early seventies. And so she would go live with her mother, but her mother just blames her for her and her father's divorce and is just like this awful witch of a woman, just like a horrible, horrible woman Mm -hmm. that she's finally cut ties with. And so she doesn't want to get back into like this other weird abusive situation that she was in all through her childhood. So um, we see like that complex weighing of that decision. And we also get these really important flashbacks to her happy memories with Jack and like when they were in college and they were young and in love and how he helped her grow as a person and helped her break those ties with her mother. And I I think that all of these things are so important for understanding the context of the things that happen down the line, because to fully understand the tragedy of this story, you have to understand how much Jack wants it to be okay and how much Jack loves his family because it is truly a tragedy. It could be called Jack Torrance and just be like a full Greek tragedy because he there's so much hope and so much promise in this first chapter and you're rooting for Jack the whole time and you're so disappointed every time he fucks up. And it's like such a human experience of like not being able to get out of this cycle of just like constantly doing something wrong. And like, it's so human. And I just think that that's one of the things that the film can never convey. And I think that it's crucial for my understanding of everything that happens later. And then, as I mentioned, Danny has these clairvoyant abilities where he's like able to sense his parents emotions and thoughts and so you're also viewing all of his parents emotions through the eyes of a child as well because he's seeing things like divorce pop up in his mother's head and he's terrified of that word because he knows his friend in school his parents got a divorce and it was the worst thing that happened to that kid and he doesn't understand the concept of having to go to court. And he's like, I don't know. Mommy and daddy are both really good at tennis. So I don't know who would win in custody. And like, it's so Mm -hmm. sad. And he's just this five-year-old little boy trying to understand divorce through the bits and pieces that he's getting from his parents' minds. And he hears his dad thinking about the bad thing. But then one really important piece of information that you also get from Danny's point of view is when he finds his dad thinking about suicide. And um, that also gives you another lens into Jack's character because he is 
severely depressed as well. Like he's a recovering alcoholic, his life is falling apart and he's depressed. And this is like his one chance to like make it right and do better and be better and write this play and fix everything. Um, so yeah, I just think that, uh, this, this first section gives you all of this like rich detail into this family's history and it's like so valuable to understanding everything. But yeah, I really think that this book is about this like hope for a second chance and how some people, no matter how many second chances they get, they just won't be able to get out of that cycle um, and like never reach that full potential. Whoops. Never reach that full potential for what they could be. Um, and I really love... I, I, this is more generally like a comment about Stephen King's writing of horror, but I just love the way he builds his scares because he, this is like a masterclass in foreshadowing. Like this novel is fantastic at like using Danny's premonitions to like give you hints of different things that you've seen before. So when um, Jack is initially interviewing for the position, he sees a rogue court, um, which is kind of like a croquet court. Um, oh. it, but what it's is it like called? Roque. How do it's, you spell? It's R-O-Q-U-E, I believe. And it's a predecessor of croquet. Oh. Um, and they explain that in the book, but basically it has a big mallet. And Danny keeps getting these premonitions about a mallet with, like, blood and hair on it. And Yikes. Uh, Tony is, like, showing him these things. And then when his dad gets out of the car to tell him, like, I got the job. It's so exciting. He has, like, a vision of the mallet in the car. And uh, he, like, freezes up and gets really scared. And he's he kind of deep down in his person knows that his dad might be the one that's going to hurt him. Like he's trying to put all the pieces of information together, but he just can't believe that his dad would hurt him or his mom in that way. Like, and I just think that it's the, the foreshadowing that Stephen King is using there is really effective. And uh, it gets me every time. Like I've read this book at least three times now, all the way through. And I'm still like, surprised and um uh scared in the same way and i just uh it's just such a a beautiful story beautiful and tragic and thought-provoking yeah um that's all i got on that i just really recommend that if you haven't read it um it's just a really fantastic piece of fiction i should really go back and finish it yeah i have it on my shelf right now it's definitely worth a read and i think that the reason i view the movie in one way is just because i read the book first and had this whole framework for thinking about the things that happen later Mm -hmm. and it i can't separate those two things so the movie doesn't include all of that like love and like you don't get any of that and that's not a fault for the movie if you're viewing it in isolation but I just can't view it in isolation anymore Mm -hmm. I've lost that ability (laughs) um and so if you watch the movie first and you love the movie all I think that this book will do is just enrich your uh, thinking about the characters and expand on what the movie didn't show yeah I'm really glad that I saw the movie first so that I had no 
idea what information it wasn't including. Yeah. Um, because obviously, like... I mean, it's a 700-page book. You can't include yeah. everything. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, yeah, because, like, the film works great as a its own thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm certain if if you have that much investment in, in the backstory mm-hmm. and some, uh, like, all of these inner monologues that can't be conveyed in film, and that is really enriching the entire story for you, I can see how that would certainly impact your film viewing. So I feel yeah. really fortunate that <laughs> I saw the film so many times. I would love to do a, like, top five someday of films or content that you'd like to experience again for the first time. Oh, okay. Like, with, like, a blank mind and Mm -hmm. no knowledge. I think that would be really cool because I would want to watch the film first and then read the source material because I think I would have a much more positive um, impression of the film. I agree. I did recently watch it. I think I mentioned this to you, but not on our episode. I did recently watch it again as an adult, and I have a much greater appreciation for the 1980 film as well. Much greater than I had as like a 14-year-old child. So um, this isn't to say that I don't like the film at all. I do like the film. I just think that there's so much for me that is so important and uh, just like crucial for understanding those characters that I just love the book so much more. Oh, our overlaps. Yeah. So what do these things have in common? Do you have any that you want to say first? I feel like I always lead in with the overlaps. Um, I mean, they certainly have a lot of superficial things in common. Mm -hmm. Namely, I'm not sure if you explicitly said this, but the Overlook Hotel is in like the American Rockies, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's true in Colorado. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I yeah. I just. I, I guess I just realized I didn't know if that was the in the book. Oh or not. yes, it is. Um. Yep. So yeah, these are both stories taking place in mountainous regions that get a lot of snow in winter. Mm-hmm. So it's there's a lot of beautiful mountain snowy imagery mm-hmm. for both. Certainly, the father son relationship is front and center for both of these pieces as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in the novel. I mm-hmm. would say that Danny and his father are a lot closer in the novel than in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And there's just a lot more interaction between the two of them. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting um, when you were describing some of the, the added context that you get to the characters and their relationships in the book, specifically the element where you described that Danny um, is so... Um, keen to have um, approval from his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely, I think, the the driving force for a lot of Petari's uh, choices in Rare Exports, where mm-hmm. he he wants to get his dad's approval because he feels like he's, you know, never doing anything right, oh. and his dad's never satisfied. And you can definitely see that... He, he he really wants to make his dad proud. Mm-hmm. This isn't really like a direct overlap, but when you were talking about the stuffed dog that Patari carries around yeah. and talks to, it made me think of Tony a little bit. Yeah, because all actually. of the adults think like, oh, this is just an imaginary friend. Like, this isn't a ghost boy that is telling my son <laughs> the future. Uh, <laughs> of he course not. In my mouth. <laughs> That's not in the book either. 
That's my favorite part. I hate it. <laughs> I totally. say that to Will all the time. <laughs> He's my friend Cody. He lives in my mouth. <laughs> I was cracking up at that point as an adult. I was like, what in the heck is this? <laughs> um, the finger thing. I know. That's nothing. <laughs> He's just a normal I kid. No, I love it. He's so weird. It's great. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I just thought that that was kind of interesting. Um, an interesting thing that you mentioned. That... Yeah. His little friend, Rupe, mm-hmm. he like carries him around on a leash and tells him to stay so mm-hmm. that he doesn't get hurt. This isn't an overlap, but I really think you'll love Dick Halloran's character in the yeah. book. Like, oh, I love him so much. He's incredible. That man would do anything for Danny. And that's the kind of love and affection we need for Danny right now. And the fucking movie kills him off. Like, spoiler alert, Dick Halloran lives. (laughs) I know. It's so good. I definitely am looking forward to that aspect for sure. Oh my god, it's so rich. Fantastic. Um, any other major overlaps? There's um, lots of fun snow vehicles. Sorry, I'm thinking of the film again. I can't. I don't know why. Okay, I'm there's fun snow vehicles. There's okay. fun snow vehicles. They're very important for the plot. Okay, good, They're good, good. Very good. important. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's focused around family dynamics. Um, sure. It's like a small, tight knit group of people. So, yeah, working together, hopefully, mm-hmm. or not. Yeah, there's an overarching creepy vibe. Yeah, definitely. Gosh. Yeah, there's like external creepy forces meddling with the yes. family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The external forces part is very, very highlighted in the book, which I love. I think it's really important for things to be acting on Jack because there's a quote in the book where Wendy's like thinking and she says, she felt that the three of them had been permanently welded together, that if their three oneness was to be destroyed, it would not be destroyed by any of them, but from the outside. And Mm -hmm. it does, it does from the outside. (laughs) Bad ghosties. Very bad. Oh my gosh. And the ghosts are fit. Chef's kiss. Love a good ghost. (laughs) Not here though. (laughs) If anyone heard me. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com, and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice, and we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.